We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk Down Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Weimer. It's March 29th, 2022. And today we welcome the CEO of Hitex, Jerry Petratos. He'll explain how his company is automating the physician query process. Crystal Kemble, a consultant for Covenant Health, reports on the intersection of patient safety indicators and physician queries. We'll also get the latest coding news from Lori Johnson. Dennis Jones is at the Tuesday News Desk, and Dr. Reamer presents her talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who's made you a new mixtape he knows you're going to love, Chuck Buck. Oh, good morning, everybody, and thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 501st live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Well, welcome back, Erica. You were missed last Tuesday. Of course, that's when we celebrated our 500th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. I know. I was very sad to have missed it, but I was speaking to Ohima about querying in Columbus, Ohio. And today, I would like to wish our listeners happy National Physicians Week. And one of our guests, Dr. James Kennedy, was on last week. And, of course, he reported on the use of artificial intelligence in the physician query process. Yes, I know. I did listen. And uh, I agree with Jim that AI is not going to replace CDSs, but could be a useful tool. Yep, indeed it could be. And so today we asked the CEO for High Tech, Jerry Petratos, to be on our broadcast. His company has actually developed a solution that is being used in some of the major vendor applications, like here comes a commercial, like Epic. <laughs> well, I'll <laughs> be interested to hear what he has to say. And continuing our reporting on artificial intelligence and the query process, we've got Crystal Kimball at Covenant Health to report on the intersection of patient safety indicators and physician queries. Yes, PSI is another opportunity to get providers to document correctly. Yep, indeed it is. And so what's on your radar screen for your talkback segment this morning? Well, I'm going to be discussing rubrics and how they enter into professional billing by components for now. Okay, very good. And we're looking forward to your talkback segment, as we do every Tuesday. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Dennis Jones. Dennis is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is brought to you by ICD University Bookstore, reminding you to save 20% when you purchase the Social Determinants of Health webcasts and packages. Just enter the coupon code SOCIAL22 at checkout. Get comprehensive help to correctly use the ICD-10 CMZ codes to report social determinants data. Now available at the ICD University Bookstore. Here now is Dennis Jones. Hey, thank you, Chuck. And it's, it's great to be back talking to you. I can't believe that I missed the 500th episode, but 501, we're, we're starting a new day. Um, my, my, uh, my review today, um, to anybody in healthcare, or anyone who's aware of trends in healthcare, the rise in healthcare workplace violence has become increasingly alarming. There have been numerous tragic stories about patients and families of patients harming or threatening to harm healthcare workers as they're trying to provide care to patients in multiple healthcare settings. Just last Saturday night in Florida, a 29-year-old man who had attempted suicide grabbed a large pair of scissors and ran through the emergency room, threatening and scaring staff and patients. Cornered by deputies who were on site, the patient raised the scissors above his head and was then shot and killed by deputies. On January 28th, 
an agency nurse who was working at Oxner's Medical Center in Louisiana, was attacked by a man who was visiting a patient in the hospital's ICU. After arguing with family members of the patient, the man turned on the nurse, punching her and knocking her unconscious. Stories like this have become numbingly commonplace in hospitals. Violence against healthcare workers across the U.S. has gotten worse. According to statistics released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, healthcare workers are five times more likely to suffer an injury as a result of violence in the workplace than workers in all other settings. Unfortunately, COVID has made everything worse in some predictable ways and some unpredictable ways. Emergency rooms have always been the ground zero of hospital workplace violence as they've become more crowded. Increased volume causes longer waits. These two factors are often the combustible mixture that lead to attacks or threats to emergency room staff. Restrictions on patient visitation has also led to anticipated pushback, literally and figuratively, to hospital staff trying to enforce hospital and state-mandated requirements. The president and CEO of Scripps Health in San Diego reported to the local CBS affiliate that verbal and physical abuse against staff had risen 17% in 2021 because, and this is a quote, there have been some very hostile people who refused to wear their masks as mandated by the hospital and state guidelines. What wasn't, what wasn't expected, at least by me, is the increase of harassment of healthcare workers who are providing services to the community to prevent or treat COVID-19. The Associated Press reported stories about cars belonging to doctors and nurses being vandalized in New York. The Washington Post reported on violence against staff increasing dramatically at Cox Medical Center in Branson, Missouri. As a result, the hospital issued panic buttons to its 400 nurses and other employees. A vaccination site in Georgia had to be shut down after um, people were harassing and making threats toward public health nurses and other workers at a mobile clinic. According to Pointer, a nonprofit medical uh, institute and newsroom, uh, a Dallas-based emergency room physician summed up the situation for healthcare workers. He said, a year ago, we're healthcare heroes and everybody's clapping for us. And now we're being, in some areas, harassed and dis disbelieved and ridiculed for what we're trying to do, which is just depressing and frustrating. Reacting to this situation in early 2021, the U.S. House of Representatives passed H.R. 1195, the Workplace Violence Prevention for Healthcare and Social Workers Act. It passed with bipartisan support, but the bill is now still in review by the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. The bill does not establish penalties for those who commit violence against healthcare workers. Instead, this bill requires that healthcare entities establish workplace violence prevention plans that would be enforceable by OSHA. The bill has been supported by the American Nurses Association and the Emergency Nurses Association, who cite the need for added protection of workers. But surprisingly, the American Hospital Association opposes the bill. The AHA has pointed out the requirements of the law might be redundant to new requirements from the Joint Commission, which recently established some new requirements to standardize provider plans for the safety of their employees. Further, the AHA states that the cost of implementing work workplace violence prevention plans is something that hospitals cannot afford in these times of dwindling financial margins caused by COVID-related volume loss and added costs. Another bill in Congress might address the issue of the cost of implementing works, uh, workplace safety plans to providers, 
um, bipartisan bills, H.R. 5963 and S. 3611, the Provider Relief Fund Improvement Act, uh, would extend the deadline for providers to use all 2020 PRF disbursements through the end of the public health emergency. The bill would also establish that funds could be used to enhance workplace security measures for staff, such as hiring additional security personnel. Now, some states, Utah, Oregon, New York, Maryland, and Michigan, have introduced laws that make physical assault on healthcare workers a felony with penalties of significant fines and prison time. But the great state of Wisconsin has established a law which addresses the whole topic of violence and threats against healthcare workers. In Wisconsin, where battery against a nurse, emergency medical provider, or person working in the emergency department was already a felony, punishable by up to six years in state prison and a maximum fine of $10,000, it is now a felony to assault or threaten healthcare workers in response to an action taken by the healthcare provider or his, in his or her official capacity, according to the bill. The law protects any person who is a healthcare provider, a staff member of a healthcare facility, or a family member of a healthcare provider or staff. The president of the Wisconsin Hospital Association spoke on behalf of the state's hospitals. With significant workforce challenges in Wisconsin hospitals, we cannot afford to lose providers because they fear threats in the workplace. Today's new law will send a strong message to the public that threats against healthcare workers are taken seriously and not tolerated in Wisconsin. The Wisconsin law is certainly an important step in protecting our healthcare workers. The rest of the country may not have followed when Wisconsin established cheese curd as the standard by which all restaurants should be judged, but maybe this bill will show other states, even the federal government, the way to protect our healthcare workers. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dennis, very much. That was Dennis Jones. Dennis is the Administrator of Patient Financial Services for Montefiore Nyack Hospital in Nyack, New York. It's Tuesday, it's March 29th, and you're listening to the 501st Live Edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Dramatic constant change is now the norm for society and for healthcare. With so much upheaval, you must adopt new practices and protocols, including how you access continuing education. In-person conferences are not always possible, but it's important to stay current with ICD-10 coding best practices and the latest rules. And CEUs are still needed to maintain professional credentials. Get critical continuing education today with a subscription to ICD-10 Monitor Educational Webcasts. For one affordable annual fee, everyone on your team gets access to dozens of exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcasts on a comprehensive range of timely topics. Is an ICD-10 Monitor subscription right for you? Visit ICD10Monitor.com to learn more about a webcast subscription. Now it's the time for the Talk to Tuesday Coding Report with Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. I was so sorry to miss the 500th program celebration, but I offer my congratulations to all the people associated with it and the hard work it takes to achieve it. Um, as we talk about CDI this morning, I wanted to review the Hospital Acquired Condition, or the HACs, and note that these topics are open for queries as well. The HACs are effective for April 1st are the foreign objects retained after surgery, air embolism, 
blood incompatibility, stage 3 and 4 pressure ulcers, falls and trauma, catheter-associated UTI or CAUTI, vascular catheter-associated infections, surgical site infection, mediastinitis, after cabbage, manifestations of poor glycemic control, DVT or PE with total knee or hip replacements, surgical site infection, bariatric surgery procedures, surgical site infection, certain orthopedic procedures of spine, shoulder, and elbow, surgical site infections following cardiac implantable electronic device procedures, and iatrogenic pneumothorax with venous catheterization procedures. The codes associated with each hack are available in the resource tab. These codes are used in combination with the present on admission indicators. Y is it was present at the time of inpatient admission. N is not present at the time of inpatient admission. U is documentation is insufficient to determine if condition is present on admission, and this is treated as a no in the grouper process. W is provider is unable to clinically determine whether the condition was present on admission or not, and this is treated as a Y by the grouper. Some codes are exempt from reporting the POA indicator. The rules about present on admission can be found in the ICD-10-CM coding guidelines. If the presence of the condition at the time of admission is unclear, it is appropriate to query the provider. This information may support if the payer is questioning and may want to remove or change that indicator. So at least if you have the query, you have documentation to support the POA indicator. And with that information, Erica, I will turn it back to you. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant at Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Lori Johnson, thanks again. It's time for our Tuesday focus, and today our focus is about how the intersection of patient safety indicators and physician career process works. Here now with our Tuesday focus is Crystal Kimball. Good morning, Crystal. Good morning, Chuck. Something I always love to talk about, some PSIs. One of the most common factors of all the patient safety indicator, the ICD-10 CMS diagnosis have, is that they all have a present on admission status of no. Often we think about that present on admission status of only as a Y or a no. CMS, however, provides us guidelines and indicator options and definitions for those, as Lori just spoke on. So if we look at those, those are not always a bad thing. So when we are wanting to craft queries to the physician, we need to be mindful of that. So when we're looking at the PSI measurements, one of the most common denominator exclusions that we're going to look at is that principal ICD-10 diagnosis code or that secondary diagnosis that's present on admission. If during our review, 
we see that the diagnosis is not documented as present on admission, that does not mean that we need to stop our review. Our review is not complete. We need to start searching for some signs and symptoms that were maybe present on admission, even though we did not do labs or diagnostics performed right until after the admission, because this is really vital to our review. For example, if we have a patient that is admitted and they have complaints of pain in that left lower leg, and two days into the stay, we do a DVT or we do a Doppler, and it shows that that patient has a left lower extremity DVT. What we have now is a perfect opportunity to formulate a query to that physician. So what we need to do is be mindful of that when we're formulating our options. As with those CMS guidelines, we, we, we can use those for us. So we need to just make sure that when we are formulating our queries that we give the most appropriate options for our physicians. So we need to make sure that those are present on admission, not present on admission, other unknown, clinically unable to determine. And we need to be able to educate our physicians to understand the terminology because a lot of times physicians don't understand that and they just say unknown because in their minds they are thinking unknown, but they do not realize that CMS, that there are specific words to this documentation. So we could use that as far as physician um, education as well. So after the review, after the physician reviews the query and the medical records, he may not be able to determine if that condition was present on admission. And if the provider documents as such, clinically unable to determine the POA assignment per our CMS guidelines is going to come out to a W, and that is going to be for the win, capturing the patient's clinical picture and accurate assignment of present on admission status. Thank you, Crystal. That was Crystal Kimball. Crystal is a consultant at Covenant Health. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you again, Crystal. Appreciate it very much. Coming up next, could clinical documentation integrity specialists lose their jobs to the automated query process? Well, that's a major story, and it's next. Learn a faster, easier pathway to high-quality documentation when you purchase the handbook Essentials for Clinical Documentation Integrity. High-quality clinical documentation plays an essential role in getting paid correctly and improving patient outcomes. The Clinical Documentation Integrity Book measures up to this critical function. It uses a three-step approach that covers possible clinical indicators, risk factors and treatments, enabling effective chart reviews and physician queries. Divided into major diagnostic categories, this convenient handbook integrates coding rules and guidelines DRG assignments, breakdowns of ICD-10 codes, and high-risk DRGs. In addition, solidify your knowledge through case studies, anatomy and physiology lessons, at-a-glance reference aids, diagrams, and much more. It's the ideal training tool for both new and seasoned CDI specialists. Now available at the ICD University Bookstore. Order yours today. What's involved in getting into the mind of a physician to automate the query process? Well, joining us now is the CEO for Hitex, is Jerry Petranos. Good morning, Jerry. Welcome to Titan Tuesday. And so uh, your team looked around and they said, huh, automated query. So, Jerry, what's next? Yeah, thanks, Chuck. Well, as you know, nurses and doctors have been finding new and better ways to communicate for years. Uh, doctors first worked with nurses to deliver standing orders so that the patient would benefit from not having delayed treatment and the doctor could avoid a call in the middle of the night 
If you remember, you know, patient gets a fever under 101, then give Tylenol. Or if they're diabetic and their blood glucose rises to 150, then give a unit of insulin. So when provi uh, providers are given the relevant patient information near the time of seeing the patient, uh, we've shown that they make the right decision 99.9% .9 of the time. Uh, however, if they're asked to return to old patient charts, they struggle. In today's medicine, if they're given too many false prompts to change documentation, they struggle. They can't find enough time in the day to respond effectively. Uh, I remember a time when my uh, resident colleague fell asleep at the wheel while driving back to the hospital the following night after being on call to complete his unsigned notes. He showed up at another ER because he slammed into a tree, and those charts uh, were left incomplete. So that's a situation we're trying to avoid. Uh, similarly, uh, with CDI specialists expected to provide guidance on documentation, they're often under-resourced. Uh, most healthcare providers will tell you that their query rates for inpatient charts are at about 20% of all charts. But what if I told you that every inpatient chart could warrant a CDI query, which would include not only the DRG shifting diagnosis, but also ones for quality, clinical validation, and risk adjustment. Uh, the conventional thinking is to capture risk adjustment only in the outpatient setting, but the reality is the inpatient setting is an ideal opportunity because the patients are the sickest, and there's a whole care team who can contribute to properly capturing these other conditions. Uh, when I studied physician behavior and how they interact with queries, I found that if a query is delivered right at the time of completing their documentation, the physician responds immediately to the query 20% of the time. Not only that, but if they receive three times the amount of queries because of the AI, the remaining 80% is always addressed before the patient leaves the hospital. So that's a powerful capability that AI brings to the table. Uh, like the nurses who help develop standing orders early in medicine's history, the CDI spe specialists are now the most important resource to ensure that the right evidence is available for documentation-related decision-making. The only difference to what's currently happening today is the emphasis should be on getting the advice to the doctor as early as possible ideally as they're completing the draft of their note and definitely before the patient leaves. AI has recently been shown to be an important part of diagnosis, decision support, and documentation improvement. By using the computer to synthesize the thousands of data points um, to address the need for timely evidence, synthesis, and delivery of the uh, CDI to the doctor. So there's two areas to focus on for CDI in the world with AI. First is education of physicians and CDI specialists and coders in how to automate their knowledge and to use the computers to reduce the time needed to, the, to conduct the chart review. We want to leverage the computer in what it's best at, synthesizing lots of data in a few seconds. But most computers don't work in a vacuum. They require competent people to structure the logic that would be used in the initial al algorithms for the AI. If you ask whether the CDI function will become obsolete, it's actually the exact opposite. The need is so high for trained CDI specialists and coders who understand how to help the computer identify the right evidence. So in my view, CDI can become the conductors orchestrating the combinations of digital evidence now available through electronic health record workflows. The computer plus the CDI specialist can deliver more timely advice to providers to improve accuracy and timeliness of claims codes compared to the CDI specialist alone. 
Rather than replacing manual efforts, the AI executes a synthesis of evidence and speed needed to get the query to the doctor while the patient's still being seen. And rather than lengthy chart reviews from scratch, the CDI function provides review and oversight of the computer output, much more efficient use of their time. So the advent of the HR has made documentation, decision support possible due to common workflows and digitization of clinical data for processing. And good AI can surface many medical conditions which are often hidden in a chart, often going untapped. So targeted and timely patient-specific advice to practicing clinicians with constant oversight from CDI as the conductors is the future. Ensuring compliance and extracting diagnoses for not only reimbursement, but also for the quality, clinical validation, and risk adjustment areas are more than enough to keep CDI busy for the foreseeable future. And that's how it is, Erica. Thanks, Jerry. That was the CEO for Hitech's Jerry Petratos. Now is the time for a very popular segment here at Talk to Juicy. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. I've been doing a project assessing emergency providers' documentation and their evaluation and management levels of service. Anyone who deals with the professional fee anywhere other than in the office since January 2021 is familiar with trying to get providers to comply with the CPT component requirements. Those components are history, which comprises history of present illness, past medical, social, and family history, and review systems, physical examination, and complexity of medical decision-making. I understand how a medical professional can undervalue their services and downcode unintentionally. What I don't understand is how, if a provider is selecting an appropriate level of service, they cannot fulfill the requirements to bill at that level. CPT provides us with a rubric detailing their precise expectations. In the emergency department, there are five levels of service in the 9928 series. 99281 requires a problem-focused history and examination and requires straightforward medical decision-making. These patients have very minor or self-limited problems. 99282 demands an expanded problem-focused history and physical exam with MDM of low complexity. The presenting problem is of low to moderate severity. 99283 has the same history and physical examination requirements as 99283. I'm sorry, it's 99282, but the MDM is of moderate complexity. The presenting problem is of moderate severity. 99284 also has MDM of moderate complexity, but what distinguishes it from level 3 is the history and physical need to be detailed. The presenting problem is of high severity and requires urgent evaluation but does not necessarily pose a threat to life or limb. 99285 has the highest bar, comprehensive history and physical examination, high complexity of MDM, and the presenting problem is of high severity and poses an immediate threat to life or limb. So the difference between levels 2 and 3 is the complexity of MDM, And the difference between levels three and four are the extent of the history and physical examination. I tell providers to figure out where on the spectrum the presenting problem lands and then flesh out the history and physical examination to satisfy the requirements for the appropriate level of service. 
there are guidelines as to what constitutes problem-focused, expanded problem-focused, detailed versus comprehensive histories and physical examinations. Providers should include at least four elements for any HPI. What is the issue? How bad is it? When did it start? Is it constant or fluctuating? Does anything make it worse or better? Are there any, there are any associated symptoms? These are questions which can and should be asked and documented for just about any condition. The basics of PFSH, medications and allergies, past medical history, and whether a patient smokes, drinks, or do, does drugs are always clinically relevant. Often, the determining factor ends up being the review of systems. With a compliant caveat, it can always be rendered complete, and eight organ systems can always be examined. Therefore, any patient can have a level five history and physical examination documented, but is there medical necessity to perform a comprehensive history and physical? I instruct my providers and coders to assess the presenting problem and determine which bucket the patient belongs in according to medical necessity. Critically ill or injured, if you cross 30 minutes, it's critical care time, otherwise 99285. Really sick, 99285. Sick, 99284. Somewhat sick, 99283. Not particularly sick, 99282. Not sick and shouldn't even be in the ED, 99281. Then I tell them to make sure their documentation supports whatever level they picked. Depending on the venue and whether the patient is new or established, the provider either needs to meet two or three out of three components in the ED, it's, it, since it's like a, a new patient's three out of three. And I recommend that no matter whether, whether you have to do two or three, that medical decision-making is always one of the components. MDM merits its own discussion, and we will pick it up there next week. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. And now for a look at what's coming up your way next Tuesday. Here is, once again, Clark Anthony. Next Tuesday, April 5th, is World Health Day. Joining Chuck Buck and Dr. Reamer will be Lorraine Fernandez with the International Health Information Management Association. Mary Fletcher will talk about the controversial process of prior authorizations and how you can safely navigate the issue. And Glorianne Bryant reports on the first quarter coding funding. All that and more next Tuesday, April 5th at 10 Eastern. And that's going to be a wrap for our 501st Live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. So I want to thank our panelists today, Dennis Jones, Laurie Johnson, Crystal Kimball, and Jerry Petratos, who reported our lead story. And as always, thanks to our special co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, you can listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next week, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday and IC10 Monitor. Thanks very much for being with us today. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.